Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. The wait is finally over. Tom Cruise has put out Top Gun 2. <laughs> That's not actually what we're talking about today, but a lot more related to other red, white, and blue matters after months of questions. Will they or won't they? How will they do against the other candidate? Questions like, did you see that debate? After all of that, we now know who is locked in for November. Yeah, voters pared down their pick of candidates in the big intra-party fight last Tuesday, that being the primary election, not Top Gun. And so far, the races for the midterm general election are shaping up to be very interesting. Who will be New Mexico's next governor, the next attorney general? Could we see a shift in the balance of power in the New Mexico roundhouse? There's also congressional seats up for grabs on a newly redrawn political map of New Mexico with redistricting. Could the federal delegation representing New Mexico in Washington, D.C. go all blue for the Democrats again? This week, we're breaking down the primary and looking out at what's ahead and what could be a mud-soaked campaign with a lot of negative ads for this November. KRQE political analyst and UNM political science professor Gabe Sanchez is back with us again to talk about it. Gabe, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind talking about Top Gun, uh, <laughs> but politics in New Mexico, almost as exciting. <laughs> almost. Along the level of excitement, without getting into the, any of the races really specifically, did you feel this was an exciting primary? You know, I think uh, it had the potential to be much more exciting than it ended up being on election night. Um, I think some of the, the big races, particularly the AG's race, where we thought we might be up late counting votes late in the evening before we could call it, uh, the, the margin of victories on some of these races, you know, the big ones being uh, the Republican governor primary and obviously the AG's race on the Democratic side, didn't have you know, the excitement and buildup after we saw the, the early vote return. So I think that was a little bit of a letdown and turnout overall was a bit lower. Uh, so it, it seemed like it was a little bit of, I don't know, a status quo oriented election is the way I've heard a lot of people talk about it. So that's, that's probably my assessment at the end of the day. So let's start with what's bound to be the biggest race of the year, the race for governor. Out of the primary, Republicans nominated Mark Ronchetti as their candidate. Mark Ronchetti has won in a blowout. In fact, News 13 called the race less than an hour ago after the polls closed, winning by almost 60 percent. Rebecca Dow coming in a very distant second. Were you surprised by how quickly the race was called for Ronchetti and just how much of a lead he grabbed? Yeah, you know, fo folks might remember this. We, we talked about this on a podcast several months back. And, and I remember saying, essentially, as soon as Mr. Ronchetti announced he was running, he was the immediate favorite and who I thought would win the primary. Even I didn't see anybody else who was going to maybe emerge at that point. So not surprising. Um, and in fact, although the margin of victory, a lot of folks talked about being much larger, they thought Dow and myself included would give him a little bit a stronger run. I think at the end of the day, if you look closely at the numbers, this looks pretty close to what he got in the primary when he merged victorious for, for the nominee for his Senate race. State Mark Ronchetti has easily won the Republican primary. The longtime TV weatherman will now go up against Democrat Ben Ray Lujan. This was a route for Ronchetti, about a 31-point victory. So it looks like, you know, he's about where he was at that point. Um, so from his perspective, he's looking at it and saying, look, I, I won with a huge margin of victory. I'm set up, ready to raise a bunch of money going into the general election rates. And all of that is true. But those of us that do this as a living say, well, you're going to have to do quite a bit better than you did in the Senate race um, for, for you to be victorious. So there's always two ways to look at the numbers. Uh, my sense is he's where we expected him to be. 
Um, and it's going to be a, a competitive race. I, I still would kind of earmark or, or, or handicap this as definitely a lean Democratic governor's race. And I think the governor's got uh, all the resources she needs to, to pull this out. But you all know things tighten up down the home stretch, and I would anticipate they will as we think about the general election on the governor's side. One thing that stood out about this primary race for me was just seeing the amount of attack ads from the two front runners. Those again, Mark Ronchetti and Rebecca Dow. Gabe, you mentioned to us uh, part of KRQE's election coverage a couple days ago that this felt like one of the nastiest primary cycles you've ever seen. But in this sort of Dow-Ronchetti battle, do you think that that negative campaigning is what resonated with voters or is it key to Ronchetti's success, just the fact that he's so recognizable having been a weatherman on TV in New Mexico in this television market for over a decade? Yeah, it definitely was an, an ugly race. And the way I would characterize it, at least on, on the, the governor primary on the Republican side, much more so than it had to be. Um, you know, typically you see personal attacks, more negativity um, coming from candidates who are behind and trying to make up ground. Um, and in this context, right, most of us were like, you know, Ronchetti's got a sizable lead. As soon as the, the most reputable independent poll came out, the journals and showed Ronchetti with a pretty sizable lead. At that point, you're like, you know, you don't really have to do that. And so a lot of us thought, you know, really towards the tail end in particular, you know, having some of those negative ads really was, was somewhat of a moot point in terms of the general outcome. So you're like, you know, just really have to go there, create tensions in an already somewhat divisive Republican Party. Um, and a lot of us, obviously, you think about who's making some of these decisions. Jay McCleskey, he's known for that orientated type style of politics. So it's one of those, like, at the end of the day, did you have to do that? And it did maybe makes things a little bit more difficult in terms of the transition running up to the general election. Um, so that, that's how I would somewhat characterize that. At the end of the day, did it resonate with voters? No. And one of the indications of that is if Ron Kennedy did not have a, a stronger victory this time around than he did in the Republican primary for U.S. Senate, right, you didn't really build on your base. It kind of looks like, okay, the folks are with you already, at least in terms of, um, you know, pretty solidified Republican voters. So if you didn't really gain on that, then a lot of that negative attack ad stuff clearly to me did not have a lot of traction with voters. Now, we're talking about a much different style when we move into the general election. Right. Um, I would anticipate heavy emphasis on attack ads trying to frame the governor uh, to President Biden, hammering her on inflation. All of that might play much differently when we're talking about a general election. And he's got to make up ground. Because remember, I started saying that candidates typically go there when they're trying to make up ground. I, I really think that's where Ron Ketty's at at this early stage of the general. So Ron Ketty may have an uphill battle against the incumbent Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. I know you've mentioned that New Mexico typically gives incumbents a second term, but this is also a time in which the mood is different, if not a dark time for Democrats in the middle of President Joe Biden's term nationally. What does Ron Ketty have to do to beat Governor Lujan Grisham? The way a lot of us look at these things, just first for, for viewers to get some standpoint on, you know, where do we start thinking about, you know, handicapping races or where things stand? And if you take a look at all the national kind of forecasting models, where most of those just basically take the underlying demographics, partisanship of, of the state, et cetera, most of those have this race as a lean Democrat. And what that means is like taking into consideration just those factors you know, put in hypothetical candidates, nine times out of 10, eight times out of 10, Democrats are going to win. That's what that lean Democrat status means. Now you start to add in some of the nuances, right? As you noted, 
uh, Gabrielle, that some of it is the fact that Democrats right now nationally, we know are, are really looking at a dangerous terrain for them in the midterm, right? I mean, President Biden's approval ratings dropping considerably, weren't high to begin with, right? Republicans feel enthusiasm for their candidates, all those things you put into play. And, you know, given the fact that a lot of folks have felt that, you know, the governor had to make some very difficult decisions during COVID and had implications for small businesses. A lot of people weren't happy with those decisions. So you put it all that into play. And in theory, right, this makes this maybe a tighter race than those national models are forecasted. So I would put it myself, you know, probably is definitely a lean Democrat. I think given the context that, you know, the governor has pretty solid, consistently not quite where she wants to be approval ratings, but she's not as dismal as President Biden. I think to me, what she has to do at the end of the day is, is not pull, uh, you know, I hate, I hate to say this because we never like to use people's names, but the most obvious name from recent state history is Diane Dennis. Results with 31 of 33 counties reporting Martinez beat Dennis by at least a seven point margin. We may have come up short, but I hold my head high and you should not assume you're going to win this race, campaign hard, use all those resources. She's got a huge war chest um, and put all that into play. And if she does those things effectively and doesn't make any major gaps, I, I think she gets a second term. That, that's how I see it. And no amount of noise will deter, intimidate, or create a vacuum in leadership that makes a difference for every single New Mexican. Flip side of that, you know, to directly answer your question, what does Mr. Ron Kenny have to do? He definitely has a lane. Um, and that lane basically means that he has to really cut into the governor's um, overall base. And by doing that, he's got to peel off some moderate Democrats, as well as take a lion's share of the independents out there. And in order to do that, you know, I think the playbook is, Focus on what he was able to do effectively during the Republican primary. Himself as an outsider candidate, he's already starting to frame the governor as the, the quote-unquote, right? I think the way, way he's talking about it is the, the basically model for a political insider. I think the word he used on his um, acceptance speech was, if I remember it correctly, the ultimate political insider, given the governor's resume and track record. I've got news for you. Governor Lujan Grisham is the ultimate political insider. So he's got to frame her as that and really try to get voters to connect higher inflation rates, higher gas prices, you know, tougher times for them on their pocketbooks with decisions that she's made. And I think that's the playbook or the lane for him, as well as really energizing his base. And that's a difficult battle because on one hand, that means playing into the Trump factor and, and really energizing a lot of those folks that are galvanized by Trump politics. And, and we've seen the implications for that in the state. But not going too far there, because remember, he's got to peel off moderate Democrats. He's got to get independence and connecting himself to Trump has some dangerous implications for that. So is there a lane there for him to pull this off? Absolutely. I, however, think that there might only be one victory lane for him, not several like the governor has at play. We know that outside money is clearly going to be part of this race. And as for the campaigning, the forecast, too, sounds like this will be a really heated general election race from the candidates and their own campaigning individually. We could already hear some of that, you know, energy in Ron Ketty's nomination acceptance speech. We have a governor who has decided that she will look out for the best interests of the elites in Santa Fe instead of you. 
While the governor didn't speak the night of the primary, she did put out a statement that suggested that Ronchetti is, quote, someone who doesn't know the challenges New Mexicans face and, quote, someone who has never run a business or served our state. So that being said, I wanted to just ask you broadly, how dirty do you expect this Ronchetti MLG campaign to get? You know, it's it's going to be dirty. I mean, you know, when candidates have a lot of money to spend and then primarily for me, the dirtiness usually comes from the outside packs. Right. And they're going to be heavily invested in this race. This is a, a key national overall race, particularly for Republicans who see an opportunity to pull this. Right. So you're going to see Republican Governors Association, all these outside packs formulating and running their own ads, which typically tend to be more negative than stuff coming out directly from the candidates. Now, a big indication of this is how tight does this look? Right. I think if we see early independent polling uh, that suggests the governor is at 50 or, or higher percent, a lot of that outside money might not come into play. Right. But if it's framed as a tight race um, and it remains that way, especially down the tail end cycle of things, if Ron Ketty feels like he's in this thing and he needs to make up some ground, it's going to get dirty. And, and we know the governor right, isn't afraid to, to roll up her sleeves and, and fight back. <laughs> and she's incredibly effective at that. And she's already laid out with her statement, trying to frame. And you see the battle lines are really clear, right? Ron Kennedy's trying to frame the governor as the ultimate political insider. This is the reason why New Mexico has got all the challenges that we face, because we typically have career politicians in play. And the governor is going to say, well, hey, Mr. Ron Ketty, what experience do you have to lean on to give the voters a sense of confidence, right, that you're going to improve on things? And remember, at the end of the day, the governor is basically going to try to frame things as I'm the candidate you should trust most with another four years uh, to maneuver around some of the challenges that we face. And Mr. Ron Kennedy is going to say, look, we know what we're going to get from from the governor. The same thing we've gotten for years from these, quote unquote, career politicians. Right. And so you've got the battle lines. We know what's going to happen. It's just a question of whether or not this remains tight enough for the money to keep rolling in for both candidates to get their message across. Certainly will be some interesting debates down the line to keep an eye on Uh, the AG's race. It went to Raul Torres. Some thought this race would be a little bit closer than it was. What was the deciding factor you think here for Torres? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this race, I thought, you know, I called it right. Fortunately, I've kept my streak alive. I haven't got one wrong yet. That's, <laughs> that's something I take a lot of great pride in. But I did think this would be tight. Um, let's be honest about that. Like, I thought this would be a pretty tight race. Uh, we didn't have a lot of, of data really to lean on in this. So it was a lot of just speculation and then reading the tea leaves without actually having polling data and those kind of things at our disposal. At the end of the day, and I think this has a lot of, of carryover from the conversation we just had about the governor's race. I mean, we can't talk about elections in this state without talking about crime right now, given the context of where things stand in the state and where voters' minds are. And I think one strong indication from this race that gives us some insights about the governor's race is the fact that Raul Torres winning this thing pretty comfortably gives us some indication that the fact that he is right a prosecutor, in essence, a crime fighter, right, in terms of, of his, his, his position right now before he transitions to being probably the next attorney general, voters did not hold him accountable for that, right? At the end of the day, very similar to Mayor Keller's, um, you know, second term that he was given, voters aren't really holding individuals directly accountable for what we see across the state in the city of Albuquerque on rising crime rates. And so I think that was, to me, one of the keys, right, is voters basically said, you know, Mr. Torres, we're going to give you somewhat of a pass on this because there's bigger systemic issues driving crime, and they didn't hold them accountable for that. So for me, that sends some signals that they're probably not going to hold the governor accountable to where crime is that much either. 
right? So that those are the kind of things that we look at and say, maybe unless Ronchetti does a, a bit better job than Cologne did of trying to tie crime to individuals, um, I think that's one of the big stories that emerged, not just a, what explains who won the AG's race on the Democratic side, but what does this mean about politics moving it's forward? Just, it's just a really nice feeling to be, you know, in a place where we can kind of recognize what we were able to achieve, but also think about what we have to achieve in the next several months. We've got a tough general election campaign that we're going to get ready for. We know Republicans have Jeremy Gay on tap to challenge Torres in the general election. The AG's office has only gone to a Republican, though, three times since 1912. And the last time was Harold Stratton, I believe in the late 80s, who became the eventual chairman of the Consumer Product Safety Commission for George W. Bush. But does Jeremy Gay, the attorney general, Republican challenger, have a chance here against Raul Torres? Has a, has a punch's chance, right? And using the sports metaphor, we always say in boxing, right? Even somebody who's like a three to one underdog, you land the right blow and good things happen. There's, there's that opportunity. I'm Jeremy Gay, and I'm running for attorney general. Let's get back to our way of life. Join the fight with me. Together, we will guard, protect. But, you know, given the state context, right, Republicans very rarely hold this seat. Uh, given that, you know, Raul Torres, extremely formidable candidate, he's going to have a ton of money at his disposal if he needs it. Like, I would be extremely surprised if this is a tight race, much less, you know, Torres doesn't pull this out. But strange things happen in politics, right? Torres can make a major misstep along the way that opens up an opportunity or a lane. Um, so those things can happen, but I would be incredibly surprised if, if we're not uh, calling this one really early on election night for, for Raul Torres. So both Raul Torres and Brian Colon have deep roots in democratic politics. Um, where do you see both of them going next? If Raul wins AG, what's next for him? And same thing for Brian Colon. He's going to finish out his term as auditor. But what next for these guys, you think? Yeah, I mean, for, for Torres, his future looks mighty bright, right? I mean, he's he's been somebody particularly the the more, uh, I don't like to use progressive wing, right? It's over overstating things, I think, but he's been at least the more liberal segment of the Democratic Party in the state of New Mexico's darling candidate for a while. Right. I think folks have always felt he has the potential to maybe be governor, U.S. Senate. Who knows? Right. So he's really done what a lot of us thought he would do. Use these opportunities to continue to build his name recognition and all those things. And if he uses this opportunity with the AG to build that platform, particularly, and this is key, in a state where crime is the issue right now. So he's got an opportunity if crime starts to make some inroads and folks attribute some of that to him to use that as a catapult to a number of great opportunities. But, you know, we got to talk about the fact that, and it's a good segue to think about Mr. Colon, who's been a big name in New Mexico politics for a long time. You know, his right-hand man, so to speak, Hector Balderas, was in the same exact position not that long ago, where we talked about his rising star and all those same attributes that we thought he would catapult AG to governor, et cetera. And that just has not materialized uh, for Hector Balderas. So there's always that opportunity, right? Opportunity is there uh, for Raul Torres, but that doesn't mean it's just magically going to happen. He's got to make some stuff happen with the opportunity uh, with his time at the AG for those things to play out. Um, I don't know what happens for Mr. Colon, right? I mean, we've had a, a couple of um, losses for him, you know, coupled with the fact that he won state auditor. So, 
You know, with, with, with Brian Cologne, you know, somebody who's as skilled and savvy as a politician as he is. The only emotion I have right now is gratitude. Gratitude for being able to serve the people of New Mexico. Gratitude for all the volunteers who've stepped up to say, we want you to keep serving. And that's what I've got in my heart right now, gratitude. I'll never count him out and say, like, this is the end of his run. You know, who knows what, what happens for him. But I think right now, you know, all eyes are on Raul Torres as potentially, you know, along with Martin Heinrich, right, who endorsed him. And that was a big backstory of this whole campaign, the Balderas and Cologne versus Heinrich and Torres team. Well, clearly Heinrich and Torres seem like they look to be the leaders of the Democratic Party moving forward. Before we sort of wrap up our conversation here, I did want to ask at least one question about what we saw with the state legislative races, too. We did see some of those state house races shape up to be pretty interesting, notably uh, some longtime House reps are out. Those include House Speaker Brian Egolf, the Truth or Consequences representative, of course, Rebecca Dow, who unsuccessfully ran for governor here. You've got Albuquerque Democrat Georgine Lewis, who is resigning after a DWI arrest. Also, a longtime Democratic representative, Damon Eli. He's had a lot of hands in some of the crime legislation that's happened in New Mexico. And then you think about Debbie Armstrong as well, a political ally of the governor. So we're seeing, I guess, well-known names step away from politics at the state house. And I wanted to see from you, from the results of the state house primary with some of these Democratic power players leaving, do you potentially see any major shifts in the roundhouse come the November election for the Democrats' control over the house? Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you raised that question because we didn't get a chance to really get into to this on election night, or at least I haven't had the opportunity to talk about it with you folks. Um, so there was a lot of speculation going into this, largely given the context that you laid out, right? Some, some real big names in legislative politics over the last 10, 20 years, right, have vacated for a number of reasons that you laid out. So coupled with the fact that, remember, the last couple of election cycles, we had a lot of fresh faces emerge victorious and, and unseat primarily on the Democratic side, um, some, some of these more senior folks. So we really had a transition to much younger, less seasoned legislators, right? And, and in fact, I, I heard uh, Representative Maestas talk a little bit about this on election night, that when you just look at the landscape, a lot of the legislators don't have that deep track record. So we're definitely going to see a transition. One of the things that I was paying close attention to, there was a lot of speculation that more progressive, liberal segments, relatively young, this is the time to take out people also when they don't have a lot of seniority yet. Folks had emerged victorious and there was a push to have some more moderate Democrats unseat them during the primary. At the end of the day, a lot of that didn't happen, right? I, I saw it as, as really just status quo, right? Some folks were defeated um, that were progressive, but at the end of the day, some more of the moderate or folks like to call them corporate Democrats were also defeated. We almost emerged as a wash. And the reason why a lot of us were paying close attention to that, the big speculation was what would this mean for who's going to emerge victorious for the next Speaker of House, given that uh, Speaker Egoff is, is, is leaving the position. And, you know, the, the names that have been mentioned, Javier Martinez is the person that I saw as probably being the, the lead candidate. And there was a lot of speculation, right, maybe he would be challenged more strongly if some of those more progressive folks were defeated. And given that a lot of that didn't happen, I still would handicap this to be Javier Martinez is probably going to be our next speaker. And although he's, he's not as young as he once was, where a lot of us remember him coming in as a very, very fresh face, but he represents, I think, that transition to that next generation of legislators. So for me, you know, if he emerges victorious and becomes our next speaker, it's somewhat of a transition cycle where you have some of those big names 
right, that have led the state for the last couple of decades. And we're transitioning to a new set of, of potential players where, you know, thinking about Javier Martinez, he's not one of those brand new faces, but I think he is somebody that bridges some of that seniority that's leaving to the next generation. And it's an exciting time for me. Hopefully some of these fresh faces come with fresh ideas and we need that, I think, desperately in New Mexico right now. Let's wrap up here on the congressional district races. Redistricting has reshaped some of these districts, shifting some of the Democratic-Republican strongholds. CD1 used to cover all of Albuquerque and a little bit on the edges. Now it's roped in more conservative areas of Rio Rancho and areas down to Roswell. CD2 used to cover just southern New Mexico. Now it has more liberal parts of Westside Albuquerque and the South Valley. So with all that being said, will CD1, where one-term candidate Melanie Stansberry will face Michelle Garcia Holmes. Do you expect this to be a tighter race in November as more Republicans are in the district? That's a great question. I mean, at the end of the day, through redistricting, essentially the way things shuck out is a little fewer Democratic voters, right? And and and, and both our, our northern district and here in Albuquerque, and maybe right, increased Democratic support down south, right? That's essentially the way the map broke out. I would be surprised if Stansberry doesn't win this still pretty, pretty handsomely, just given the demographics of what we're seeing in the Albuquerque metro and, and the Albuquerque area right in this district. Um, but, right, it should be, in theory, a little bit tighter than the last round, given the way that redistricting shook out. I'm Melanie Stansbury, and I approve this. I'm Michelle Garcia-Holmes, and I'm running for United States Congress. A big question is going to be whether or not nationally Republicans see this as a winning seat. Uh, because if they don't, the resources won't be there for Garcia Holmes to be able to capitalize on that and do something with it. So let's pay close attention to the very early polling that comes out on this. If it looks like Stansberry has a very wide margin, I don't see the money coming into play uh, to give Republicans an adequate shot at, at being able to take this seat. Really where the action is going to be is down south, right? That's through redistricting. Republicans obviously filed a lawsuit on this, so they feel like they got shortchanged in, in the redistricting process. In, in terms of thinking about partisan gerrymandering. So they see this as being less competitive for them, or at least a tougher seat for them to be able to maintain. That's, I think, where we really will see if there's any implications from redistricting, it'll be down south, which was already one of the hottest watched congressional district seats in the country already. If anything, this has just become even more interesting and more tight. Yeah, and that congressional district two seat, again, an area now that seemingly has more Democratic voters, uh, former Las Cruces City Councilor Gabe Vasquez. Good morning, Democrats. This is Gabe Vasquez, your candidate for Congress in the 2nd District of New Mexico. It's a well-known name down there. He will face Yvette Harrell, a Republican running for her second term in her third election. Hey, everybody. It's Yvette Harrell. First and foremost... Democrats are, of course, facing headwinds in this election with the state of the country and, and the midterm elections right now and Joe Biden's polling numbers. Can Vasquez pull off a win against Harrell, against these Democratic headwinds with this new district in mind? Definitely can happen. I mean, just like we handicapped the governor's race, right? Same logic here. This is a lean Republican district, you know, and you've got those national headwinds. I mean, Democrats are going to get hammered. In the midterm, there's no doubt about that, right? It's just that's that's what the tea leaves are saying. That's where enthusiasm is. You know, you've you've got uh, ordinarily, if if the president President Biden's making a trip to New Mexico, Democrats are super excited. Um, not so much right now. There's like maybe, hey, I don't know if this is good for us or not, given given his, his approval ratings are. So it's a difficult task for Democrats to pull this out. But with redistricting shaping up the way that it did. And the prospects, remember, this has been a tug of war seat, 
right over the last few election cycles. So I would expect this to be very interesting. But I think right now, if I had to call it, I'd say, look, Yvette Harrell probably is going to win this race, given what we're talking about nationally. But this is a race that we're all going to be paying close attention to. We'll be talking a lot about this down the home stretch between now and November. Yeah, lots to talk about till November and lots to see out there on uh, in terms of all the different media that we'll be uh, inundated with, I'm sure. So, Gabe, thanks for, for being here. We appreciate your analysis. Yes, as always. Always fun to talk about and always interesting with both of y'all. So I appreciate you having me. Hopefully that gives you a good idea of what to expect for November. Obviously, a lot of months between now and then. We will keep you posted with all of the latest political coverage. Um, check out a lot of the articles that we post digitally. Do krqe.com only. Curtis Cigar does a lot of political write-ups, especially related to campaigning and the amount of money that a lot of these candidates are spending. And just a plug, months ahead of time, we will be live streaming on election night. You can uh, watch our full coverage there on krqe.com. If you didn't catch it on this last primary, it's a chance for us to basically be online, talk about the numbers throughout the entire evening. And uh, we, we... appreciate the fact that we're the only station in town doing this online. So uh, if, you, if you're really into politics, local politics, krqe.com on election night, that's the place to be usually live streaming there with political analysis from either our own employees here or Gabe definitely joins us at times. Yes. So thanks for doing that, Chris. And we will have another episode for you all next week. Stay tuned. We are getting ready to get Chris McKee married here in the next couple of weeks as well. So we want to congratulate him and his fiance slash soon to be wife, Rebecca. We're really excited and happy for them. If you want to reach us, you can always email gabrielle.burkhard at krqe.com via email. I'm gburknm on Twitter. And you can also reach out to me, chris.mckee at krqe.com and at TV on Twitter. Send us your story ideas. You can also send your marriage advice if you have any. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate the kind words, Gabby, and we appreciate y'all listening.